Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the In Conversation with eClinical Medicine podcast. I'm Claudia Schäfer, the Editor-in-Chief for eClinical Medicine, the Lancet Discovery Science. Each month, we will be interviewing one or more authors of a paper published in our journal, giving them an opportunity to provide a deeper discussion of their research. We are here today with Valeria Frigi to talk about the risk of major osteoporotic fractures in people with intellectual disabilities. Dr. Frigi is a physician specialized in endocrinology and diabetes, working as a research fellow in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oxford. She has a special interest in physical health of people with severe mental illness and with intellectual disabilities because endocrine and metabolic disorders are common in these groups, but often are not recognized, particularly in those with intellectual disabilities. As these disorders can generally be treated, if diagnosed, she's committed to inform clinicians, patients, carers, and advocates about common yet serious problems so that they can be appropriately managed and patients' health improved. Thank you for joining us today, and uh, I want to welcome to our podcast. And so your paper that we recently published in eClinical Medicine investigates the incidence of fractures, including major osteoporotic fractures in people with intellectual disabilities over their life course. So to begin with, uh, could you just tell us a little bit more about your study the rationale behind it, and basically the key main findings. Right. I will start with a little bit of personal history, personal research history, because in a way I, I hadn't started looking at, at bone health. There were some of the findings, the reason why I went into it was almost serendipitous reason. So I'll tell you that uh, our study originated, first of all, from the clinical observation of a history of fracture, particularly hip and shoulder, in five middle-aged patients with intellectual disability. Um, by middle age, I mean late 40s and early 50s. And I also found a 23-year-old patient with a tibial fractures, fracture which hadn't healed for three years. And I made these observations while taking the medical history during the course of a study of over 200 patients with intellectual disabilities in whom I was studying the side effects of antipsychotics in the years 2007 to 2010. And this does not mean at all that antipsychotics were related to to these fractures. I, I just was taking a medical, a full medical history. Anyway, as an endocrinologist, I really knew that these type of fractures, which sounded osteoporotic in nature, were completely, completely abnormal at that age, and that really pathological factors, additional to trauma, must be at play. So I'm quite with my colleagues, endocrinologists, psychiatrists, general practitioners, and nobody, really nobody, was aware of people with ID having a problem with bone fractures. But we're talking about 15 years ago. And then 
At the same time, I started to dig into the literature and found no more than six small studies which are quoted in the paper, which examined the prevalence of a history of fracture and or of low bone mineral density in people with ID. And all of these studies report increased fracture rate or low bone mineral density. And these studies dated between 1989 and 2009. After that, really, my interest in bone pathology in people with ID grew. More small studies were published, including two clinical studies, which I did with my clinical research team on vitamin D in people with intellectual disabilities. Really, however, the turning point... uh, absolutely major turning point was the publication in 2017 of a major epidemiological study from Canada by Robert Balog. The authors studied the anonymized health records of a sample of just over 30,000 people with intellectual disability between the age of 40 and 64 years with a mean age of 50 and found that they were three times more likely to experience a low trauma, fragility, osteoporotic fracture and and these adjectives really mean the same thing and just say that in case I mentioned them again, just mean pathological fracture, than the age and sex matched adults without intellectual disability from the general population. At that stage, I thought, well, this is time to put in a grant application. And I did with a really brilliant research team. This was successful. And we got uh, funding from the National Institute of Health Research, now called National Institute of Health and Care Research, which funded the study we just published. And in fact, the NIHR, which is yeah, the National Institute of Health and Care Research, is the research arm of the Department of Health and Social Care. So they, the NIHR assessed the studies and then the Department of Health decides where to, whether to fund them. So the funder is the Department of Health and Social Care. So it's a publicly funded study. And all the studies I've done in people with intellectual disabilities were publicly funded either by the NIHR or by the Bailey Thomas Charitable Fund, which is a charity for intellectual disabilities. Our study, which is called Incidence of Fractures in People with Intellectual Disabilities Over the Life Course, a retrospective matched cohort study, was based in the UK Clinical Practice Research Data Link, which is one of the largest uh, general practice databases in the world. In fact, at the moment, it, it includes about 16 million people. And it is also linked to the hospital episode statistics database, which records clinical data on all hospitalized patients in England. And from these databases, we extracted the anonymized health records of all individuals with intellectual disabilities from age one year onwards, and we had 43,000 records. And of five age and sex matched control subjects per patient, we had 215,000 records. Over 20 years, the, between 1998 and 2017. And we had a total of almost 6,000 fractures in the ID group and over 24,000 in the 
control group. So this is a massive study. As a result of this study, we found a substantially higher rate of fractures in people with intellectual disabilities. The problem being particularly severe for major osteoporotic fracture, namely an aggregated outcome of vertebra, shoulder, wrist and hip. And among these, especially hip fracture. We also found a much younger aged fracture in people with ID compared to the general population without ID. And this is really consistent with the early onset osteoporosis. As a key finding, as key findings, I really would like to mention that I think things that bring the message home, like if we look at people around the age of 45, Women with an intellectual disability have a rate of hip fracture similar to those to women in the general population of around 60 year old. And for men at 45 with ID, we have similar rates of hip fractures to 70 year old men without ID. And then we estimated that in 10,000 women over 50 years old with an ID, 53 would be expected to develop a hip fracture over the course of one year, compared to 23 in the general population. And these figures for males are 38 in those with ID, compared to 10 with those without ID. So the difference is, is very large. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's pretty staggering in that way, if you think about that. Um, well, Thank you very much for providing this context. I think it's very clear now that this is already a long-standing issue, which clearly leads, leads more attention. So just, just thinking um, a little bit about the, the bigger, bigger concept here, like, can you provide um, a definition of intellectual disability and you know, just the feeling like how common this is in the general population? Right, and intellectual disabilities are impairments in both intellectual functioning and in adaptive behaviour, which covers many everyday social and practical skills, which originate in the developmental years. So most, in most cases, this is present at birth and diagnosed later, of course. But then subsequently, you may have, for instance, a brain injuries, uh, which can cause an intellectual disability or infections. And But they, the definition only includes when this happened before the age of 18. Globally, there is a large variation in the reported prevalence, uh, and it varies between 0.5% and 1.6% of the population. In England, where our study is based, the prevalence rates vary between 0.5% according to general practitioners' registers and 2.1% based on a variety of other data sources. So there is some variation. Maybe an average could be 1% of the population and 0.5% is an underestimate because those are the ones who are actually in the GP uh, registers, but not everyone gets into them. Uh, So I would say that 0.5% is actually definitely an underestimate also because this figure has been increasing over the years. Uh, So maybe you can think of something like 1%, just, uh, just as a ballpark figure. 
The most common cause of common known cause of uh, intellectual disability is Down syndrome, although there are many other syndromes also associated with, with ID. According to the literature, in most cases, the cause is unknown. In our study, we were able to find a recorded cause in about half of the cases. Just going back to your study, so the findings of your study suggest differences in the rate, onset, type, and the distribution of fractures in people uh, with intellectual disabilities over their life course compared you know, to, to those without ID. Um, so could, could you explain some of the reasons underlying these very strong differences and um, particularly the differences then also that you mentioned between men and women? Right. Our findings are really consistent with early onset osteoporosis, which I'll just very briefly define uh, for uh, as the, it's really a disruption of the microarchitecture of bone in which the balance between bone resorption and formation is lost in favour of resorption. So that leads to bone fragility. And the results of this is a rate, high rate of fracture also because people with ID have a high tendency to fall. So if you combine fragile bones with falls, then that's the perfect storm, really. We have investigated risk factors for fracture, in particular major osteoporotic fracture and hip fracture in another study in the same population from age 30 years onward. And that study also covers the reasons for the gender difference and we hope to be able to publish our findings within the next six months or so. So I can't really expand very uh, very much on this uh, and hopefully I'll be able to, we'll be able to publish the whole of it uh, soon. But there's something that I need to point out and that it's that the absolute rate of fracture in adults uh, is higher in women than men, both in the general population and in the ID populations. But the difference, though, is smaller in the ID group, hence the relative risk of fracture between women and men is lower. And based on our own general population data, I mean, the population without ID from our study, and from the beautiful study by Curtis et al., which is also in CPRD, so again, in Great Britain, part of uh, this difference is due to the low rate of fracture in adult men and the high rate of fracture in adult women, particularly after the menopause. So some of it is due to what happens in the general population. But on top of this, though, there are risk factors for fracture which operate particularly in men with ID, and some of them are untreated endocrine disorders, for instance, and which which we'll discuss in detail in our forthcoming paper, hopefully. And then one major fracture which is already known to induce bone loss or impair bone acquisition in the developmental years and is really crucial is impaired mobility or lack of weight-bearing physical exercise. Uh, But we have also investigated many other risk factors and we plan to publish our results soon. But I just want to single this out because it's acquired knowledge and very important knowledge on which 
action can be taken. And then genetic factors, obviously, are also another possibility, namely multisystem disorders, which also affect the skeleton, and that can be present from birth. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, thinking about all all of these factors, I mean, you know, all the factors that, that go into this that you just mentioned, I mean, so in your paper, Uh, you say that the higher rates of the fractures or, you know, the decreased bone mineral density has been reported, you know, in people with ID before. Well, but even the most recent osteoporosis guidelines, like they do not identify people with intellectual disability as being at risk for uh, fractures. So in that way, clearly potentially missing the opportunity for prevention. I mean, so thinking about all what were you, you know, what we just discussed, I mean, how, why do you think the guidelines do not include people with intellectual disabilities being a high risk factor group? Potentially, I think the limited ability of patients with ID to speak for themselves and defend their right to health. And secondly, the lack of a multidisciplinary approach. People with ID are normally looked after by general practitioners, neurologists, psychiatrists, clinical geneticists, sometimes other specialists as required. However, there is insufficient sharing of knowledge and communication between specialists. This has affected the problem of fractures because there is insufficient involvement of endocrinologists in the care of people with ID, mostly because endocrine problems may not be diagnosed or suspected by specialists in other areas. However, I think things are improving now due to various factors. First of all, the emphasis on translational research, which is really championed by the NIHR. In fact, our study was part of the Research for Patient Benefits stream. At the time we obtained funding, investigators were expected to translate their research into improvements in clinical practice in the space of one to three years following completion of the study. Secondly, the role of organizations which act as patient advocates. Our study was endorsed by the three main national organizations which support people with osteoporosis, namely the Royal Osteoporosis Society, people with intellectual disabilities, namely the Royal Menkerb Society, and people with Down syndrome, namely the Down Syndrome Association. These organizations are already disseminating the findings of our study. And then the third factor of improvement is a relatively novel emphasis on the physical health of people with intellectual disabilities. And then, very importantly, the legal requirement of inclusion of previously marginalized groups in the health improvements pursued for the UK population. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's certainly a good thing. Um, but yeah, but just coming back to what you just said about the most multidisciplinary approach, I mean, what, what changes... In clinical practice, you know, do you think could be or would need to be implemented? I mean, you know, to really prevent these fractures in this vulnerable population? I would like to talk about the uncontroversial recommendations because we as a group might come up with 
more recommendations, but I can't do that yet because we are still at writing up stage and we have to discuss a lot of things before we come up with our own additional recommendations. But the really uncontroversial ones are, I'm just quoting the ones from relevant organisations and extremely important organisations such as in the UK, the Royal Osteoporosis Society, Public Health England, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence. And these are to promote safe, weight-bearing physical exercise and optimal optimal nutrition, by which I mean optimal protein intake, optimal calcium intake, reduce the risk of falls, ensure vitamin D repletion, and then follow screening guidelines for celiac disease in Down syndrome. And you know, that's not very often done. Celiac disease, I mean, with any, uh, like any kind of malabsorption, obviously leads to, um, to calcium malabsorption as well. So untreated celiac uh, disease does lead to fractures and, and uh, people with Down syndrome have an average uh, 10% risk, 10% prevalence of uh, celiac disease, but that's not often screened for. And then I would say screen for and treat osteoporosis as per current guidelines, but be alert to updates in the, in the near future. And then by that, I really mean the the near future, at least in the in the UK. And then optimize control of epilepsy. I mean, that's pretty uncontroversial. But then there are some currently not considered changes, but which are very likely to be recommended in the near future, and that relate to gonadal dysfunction, for instance. This is present in very many ID syndromes, uh, including Down syndrome, but it's hardly ever thought of. Um, or particularly in in men, while in women it's easy to spot because uh, hypergonadism leads either to primary amenorrhea or to premature menopause. So, you know, the lack of periods is a is an obvious telltale sign, while in men the diagnosis of hypergonadism is much more difficult. And then uh, in people with ID, gonadal suppression can also be iatrogenic. For instance, in this population, lots of women were used to be treated with long-term progesterone for menstrual suppression or for uh, contraception, but for many, many years. So there is a problem there, potentially. And and then another potential problem in this population is uh, hypergonadism. If uh, uh, hyperprolactinemia, uh, for instance, antipsychotic-induced hyperprolactinemia induces it, not 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 in all cases. I mean, some sometimes a lot of antipsychotics induce hyperprolactinemia, but uh, this uh, not all the time. Actually, it's only in a minority of cases that this also results in hypergonadism. But you've got to think of it. If you don't, then you, you've got a problem. 
in in practice, I think that in the at least in the UK, general practitioners could play a, a key role in improving bone health in people with ID because in the UK we have uh, a statutory yearly health check which is offered to all people registered as having an intellectual disability with their GPs. And in in that context, uh, we could have, I don't know, five minutes uh, devoted to bone health. And then, you know, there could be a screening method and then going on according to, to what is uh, the result of that screening. Um, so finally, in your opinion, what do you think like the next steps uh, from your research uh, going on further now? Well, we've got uh, quite a few completed, ongoing and planned studies. So you have kindly published half of the first study because the first study is in two two sub-studies. The is called Fractures in People with Intellectual Disabilities, Comparison with the general population, and that's the bit that is published in eClinical Medicine. And the other bit is the development of a fracture risk calculator specific to these patients. Now, that second bit is also completed, and we're writing it up. The other study, which we have completed and we're writing up, is called Oral and Esophageal Side Effects of Bisphosphonase in People with Intellectual Disabilities. And that's crucial because when the news come out about increases in osteoporotic fractures in these people, then it's quite likely that bisphosphonates, which are the first-line treatment, will be used more frequently. And then we wanted to investigate the serious side effects of these drugs because we really cannot do more harm than good. Must do. First, do no harm. And it was really, this study came out as, out of a moral imperative, really, because we thought, we just can't go out saying, you know, treat osteoporosis. Let's see what happens if we actually do. So we, this study is very limited for a very for a variety of reasons, mainly due to the poor recording in the databases. But what can we do? We tried our best. So when it comes to publication, <laughs> the best we can you can get would be limited. So. Yeah, you, you know, if there's no data, you know, obviously, then that's you know also a need. You know? Yeah. So, and then the third study, which, uh, so the the second study is, is mixed funding from the NIHR and a lovely uh, charity called the Bailey Thomas Charitable Fund, which, if, which supports study in people with intellectual disabilities. And the first study that has, uh, we've completed, uh, no, 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 absolutely not completed. Uh, we're going to come, yes, I wish we had. But anyway, we're going, we, we're due to complete it by the end of this year. And it's called Cost Effectiveness of Osteoporotic Fracture Risk Assessment in People with Intellectual Disabilities. And we're looking at three different, at the cost effectiveness of three different um, screening methods. Then another one is the outcome of fractures in people with intellectual disabilities. The hypothesis being that 
they do worse than people without an ID. And we shall see. But it's in progress. And again, it's due to be completed by the end of this year. And then we've got funding from the Bailey Thomas Charitable Fund of a study called Comorbidities in People with Intellectual Disabilities and Femoral Fracture. This is because of the huge increase in hip fracture rates in the adults and a huge increase in female fracture rates in the children. So we really want to look at the reasons for those. And that is going to start next year, hopefully in March, because we've just got so much work on our plate that uh, it was due to start a few months ago, but we just can't make it. <laughs> so, yeah. so hopefully by March. Well, there is a lot to do. Yeah, there's really so. a lot to do. These uh, studies uh, are all based on CVRD. And then we had a study, a, a clinical study called Hypogonadism, Osteoporosis and Risk of Fracture in People with Intellectual Disabilities, for which we obtained funding from the Bailey Thomas Charitable Fund. Unfortunately, we had to cancel it because of COVID-19, because it was impossible to, yeah, well, and also because people with intellectual disabilities really suffered during the pandemic. And so we'll see if we can revive that study when things are safer for uh, for them. And then, really, last but not least, or actually most important than anything, we're working with the National Institute of Clinical Excellence to inform their osteoporosis guidelines update which is in progress, and we hope it will come up, come out as soon as possible. Yeah, no, there, yeah, there is a lot to do, and I think that, you know, the update of the guideline. I mean, that that is certainly something um, that we would all be looking forward. That's for sure. Um, very clear from from your interview. Well, thank you, Valeria for sharing your time and the insights into this issue. I mean, it's very clear this is a very important topic, um, but we're very excited to hear more, uh, you know, about your continuing research in the area. It seems there's, you know, there's a lot to come. Yeah, and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. And remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With E-Clinical Medicine wherever you usually get your podcasts.